You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Jen Wilkin and JT English. On today's episode, we are going to be discussing questions submitted by you, the listeners of Knowing Faith. And we had a great time doing this. Thank you for submitting questions. If we didn't get to your question today, it's not because it's not an important or not a great question. We just had questions that were really upvoted. We wanted to take that seriously. And then we had some questions that maybe didn't receive the same amount of votes, but we thought were important and sincere questions for us to address. And we were excited to jump into these. This is kind of like a double episode. It's our last episode for this season. We'll resume episodes in January after the holidays. And so we just kind of gave you probably more than what you were asking for in this episode. And so we had a lot of fun with it. We thought the questions were great questions. We so appreciate thoughtful listeners uh, and uh, we we had a blast doing it. So thank you for allowing us to answer your questions. If we didn't get to your question uh, this time, submit it again next time and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it then. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, uh, for those listening, JT, right before we, right, right when we jumped in, he tried to spook me, and it, it worked. It kind of worked. And if you listen, you, you guys could not possibly know this, but JT is constantly—he's a jump scene. He's yes, yeah. he is. He's a human jump scene. This is not true. Just it, not true. Oh, really? No. Have you read what Revelation says about liars? <laughs> I have a twitch in my right eye from the number of times that I, JT has come I don't bursting it, into my office. It's part of his leadership model. It's one of those things. I just want to keep you guys on your toes. Sure. Are you on your toes? Always. <laughs> Around Jen, are you you. On your toes? My, I don't feel like I've done it a lot to you, Jen. It's just the You times, don't feel like it? Well, I mean... What is well, it's about your feelings. This whole thing is about how you feel. <laughs> well, tell us more about you. I, I, I know that I've done it, but like maybe three times. I think it was just the no, quality of the No, it's more times than that. We're to the point now where you say, I think that was the best one yet yeah, when it, I react. It was, it was really good. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, so okay. you're, you seem to be like have some ranking system. It's, I just it's, want you it, guys to know how much I love you. Well, thank you. Well, I'm glad to hear that on the front end of this show. It's good that we're in rare form because we have titled this podcast. I have titled this podcast, Do You Even Theology? bro. Okay. <laughs> so today's podcast, we are answering listener questions. These are questions submitted by the listeners of Knowing Faith. And so we are excited to jump in. There were a lot of great questions and we are not going to be able to answer all of them. So we looked at those questions and we just chose like the ones that were kind of most upvoted on the website there. And then some of the ones that were maybe not as upvoted that we thought were really important to address, we decided, hey, we're going to jump into those as well, just because we felt like we didn't want to miss an opportunity, and we felt like the question was really sincere and a really serious question, and it merited a little bit of time. And one of the things that I think we would want you to know about what we're about to do here is that none of us, we've looked at these questions at this point, but none of us have prepared research. Some of these questions, I don't know that we have taught on in any of our environments before. JT and Jen and myself have, have all been teaching at the village and have been teaching in other environments for quite some time. So some of the questions on here I've not taught on. I know Jen and JT have not taught on these specifically. We don't have just these big research binders in front of us. We are going to be doing this together, which means we're going to be stumbling and mumbling a little bit here. This is actually Kyle's version of a jump scene, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, where I'm like, hey, JT and Jen. Why don't you answer these insane questions? Exactly. Insane in terms of depth, not in terms of them being insane questions. Right. Right. We want to honor the listener. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) If if this is one of your questions, you're not insane. (laughs) 
<laughs> the question just might be very difficult uh, or very strenuous. And so we are excited to jump into these things, and they are some doozies. So uh, I don't even know if we'll get through the ones we have in front of us, but we're going to jump in uh, and start talking through these. Uh, I think the first one that we have on here, and, it, and it's, a, it's a huge question, it, like all of these, if sin was possible pre-fall, what's stopping the same thing from happening in the new heavens, new earth? Will there be free will in the new heavens and the new earth? Let's. There is so much packed into this question. Okay, so just maybe just you give a, vo- a volley, we'll kind of pass the buck. Great. Can I just say maybe like here's some categories to think through as it relates to salvation history. That's good. In the garden, I think we would want to say that we were, of course, able to sin because yes. it happens. After the fall, we would, be, we would want to say that we're not able to not sin, that right. sin is now a part of nature and we act out from our nature, so we're sinners. As a part of being in Christ and experiencing salvation, we're now able to not sin mm-hmm. because we've been given the helper, the Holy Spirit, who's sanctifying us and we can resist temptation, yet we still do at times, we still sin. Undoubtedly, we're, we're able now to not sin. I think what we want to say here is related to this question, in the new heavens and new earth, traditionally what's taught is we're not going to be able to sin. Right. So, if and that, that comes from Augustine, right? That's right. That's the fourfold. That's yes. exactly right. So, so not from JT, no. but actually from No, I mean, he, he articulated it very efficiently. Just retrieving the tradition. I'm not I, the first I, to think about this, I appreciate guys. that. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, so if we're thinking about uh, not sinning in the new heavens and new earth, I think the account we would want to give and say the reason we're not able to sin in the new heavens and new earth is because we're in the presence of God. We're experiencing this this worship of the triune God that's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And, we, and of course, we're, we're now living in this new heavens and new earth where sin isn't even conceivable or possible simply because of where we are in the presence of God, which makes it tough because we go to Genesis 1 and 2 and mm-hmm. you say it's the same thing. And that's where I volley and pass it to you. Well, I do have an opinion about this. Right. So I think when we, when, when we begin to ask this kind of question, and this question gets asked a lot of different ways, uh, why was Satan in the garden, which mm-hmm. we will get to kind of adjacently in a minute, uh, but or why were or Adam and Eve able to sin, we have a notion that g- the Garden of Eden and that Adam and Eve were perfect. And we have to get rid of that notion. There is only one perfect being. Perfection applies only to one being, and that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the triune fellowship. That's the only thing to which we can accurately apply the word perfect. And so when we're talking about the Garden of Eden and we're talking about Adam and Eve, it is wrong if we presume to begin with perfect. And this is why this is important for this discussion, because perfect means not just morally good or morally without fault. It also means infinite. It means not limited, right? In a traditional theological sense, perfect is the completion or it's the fullness of all of the attributes. And so when we're thinking about Adam and Eve, we can sometimes think, well, how could they have possibly sinned if they were perfect? Mm -hmm. Well, they weren't perfect. They were created good. That Mm -hmm. is what scripture ascribes to Adam and Eve. It means that their will, that their cognitive abilities, that all those things were not perfect in the sense that they are perfect in God. They mirrored him in some ways, but they were not perfect in that they were completely fooled. This is one of the reasons why they chose something that would be uh, sinful, it would be broken to satisfy a deep desire in them. Why? Because they are not self-satisfied as God is self-satisfied. They're not self-sufficient as God is self-sufficient. They're not self-existent as God is self-existent. And so they operated out of this kind of broken sense of desire. They operated on the basis of a will that's not perfect because it's finite. You're looking at me like with a skeptical... I'm, no, I want to buy this, but I still think people are going to say, but how is this different in the new heavens and the new earth? Are we perfect there? This is a great question. Well, and the other part of this question that maybe is, uh, I understand why they're asking it this way because it's traditionally talked about this way is around the notion of will. The Bible is not primarily concerned about free will. 
Listen, I I am a card carrying member of the Calvinist tradition, and I, so I'll, I'll just like I'll I put didn't that. get a card. Well, you should have signed up. You are, should, you are you on the Are you on the newsletter? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you go to the luncheons? <laughs> Uh, well, Wait, not, are you wearing a lapel pin? Uh, yes, yeah. It, it comes with a $10 a month subscription. <laughs> um, but so I, I've put my card on the table, uh, and I, but the Bible is not primarily concerned with the category of free will. It's not. It's a philosophic concept. It's a kind of a moral question that we have. We approach the Bible based off of that question. The Bible is primarily concerned about nature and grace. And so this idea that they were able to sin in the garden, but they, were, they will not be able to sin in the new heavens and the earth, it relies on this fundamental understanding that grace has transformed the human nature in a way in which all of the desires are different now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yes. Yeah, okay. but let's volley a little bit here. Okay. Because I think it's will, uh, human's ability to will is an important category. I do think the Bible speaks. Okay. Right? Well, maybe. Tell me. Okay. Convince me. <laughs> So uh, uh, the account that I would want to give related to free will, and even in the Reformed tradition as a card-carrying member myself, okay. I think we would want to say the will is free. The will is always free, right? So the will is free in Genesis 1 and 2. It's free even in the midst of our kind of sinful depravity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference is is our options become limited in depravity and sinfulness as we're now dead people able yes. to choose dead things. Yes. Whereas in the garden, we were able to choose uh, God or sinfulness. We're now uh, experiencing life in the realm of death in this world. Yes. And what we're in need is of is a new option, an option presented to us at what we call the new birth. And so yep. I would give an account of the free will that says we, the, the will always choose that which is the most beautiful and good and right and, and uh, at least appearing to be to right. us. And so when the Holy Spirit uh, presents the risen Lord Jesus Christ to us and his accomplishments on our behalf, we can't help but choose him, which I would call irresistible grace. I think sure. that's what the tradition calls irresistible grace. Uh, so I think the will is free. It's a matter of in our sinful state, it's in bondage and in need of a presentation of a new option. I agree with everything you just said. So maybe I wasn't speaking clearly. I think one of the things I'm teasing at is that we are free to act in accordance with our desires. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. We, we are free. And, to, and then, only free to we. Yeah, yes, that's and that we're say. and that we're not free to contravene the will of God. Yes, that it's not primarily right, right, right. like oh human freedom and God's sovereignty. They're at these great odds. No, that battle is never. That's never been a battle. Totally God agree. is sovereign providential over all things. So when I'm saying that the Bible is not super concerned about that. Yes, I agree with you. Okay, it's not concerned about resolving yep. that tension that we normally come to the Bible and go, well, how were they able to do this? It's mm-hmm. like, they were able to do it because they were acting in accordance with their desires. Yes. So, Jen? I have a thought, but I think I'm going to hold off on it until after we look at this next question. I thought you were going to say until after we close the, the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you later. Yeah, I'm going to tell you off uh, I'll email it to you later. No, um, I have a thought, but I'm going to hang on to it until we talk about this next question, which is related to the question that we just covered. So let's try to land, land this plane real quick. Will there be free will in the new heavens and the new earth? Yes. yes. Right. And what we mean by free will is what? Uh, we will be choosing the object which is most beautiful and right and good to us, which is in front of us, the triune God. And yes. we're able to choose that because we have a restored set of desires. Of desires. That's yes. exactly so right. we, will, we will always do exactly what we want and what we want will always be right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. That's great. Yep. There we go. Look, we, we got through one of them. No Done. problem. It only took us 10 minutes, so this is going to be a two-hour episode. Um, uh, <laughs> this second question is no smaller than the first. Uh, why did God create Satan? Why would an all-knowing God create someone he knew would be the ruler of darkness? How did Satan sin in a sinless heaven? So 
Jen. Well, I have to start with this? You just said All you right, wanted so to I'm get to give it. You, so here's what I would like to just, just generally, these two questions, and honestly, a lot of questions like this fall into a particular category. So I think there's a natural curiosity we can feel about wanting to get answers to these questions. But then there's a question behind these questions that I always like people to kind of think toward as they are um, looking for maybe just a uh, an explanation that the question behind these questions is often a question that hides behind a lot of our bigger questions and it's can God be trusted mm. and uh, and also can God's word be trusted right because yeah. the the full scope of the scriptures is that all things are made right at the end and this is a question that focuses on wholly on when things went wrong and uh and, and, and even as like our previous question is like, so is heaven real? Basically what our first question was is, is heaven actually going to be, or the new heavens and the new earth actually going to be the way that Revelation says they're going to be? And um, that's a question about whether God can be trusted or not. And I don't say that like, why are you a loser for not trusting God? I, right. think, I think it's legitimate to ask those questions, but we need to understand them as what they are. They are, uh, okay, I know that the Bible says this, but can it can it be trusted and can God be trusted? And so I think when we approach these questions with the answer in our heads of, yeah, like everything I know about him is that yes, he can be trusted. It changes the weight that we put on trying to arrive at these answers. Right. So, or the burden that we feel the burden that we feel around them. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, why did God create Satan? I mean, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't think the Bible really gives us a lot on that. But, right. but because God can be trusted, I know that it must be better that this played out the way that it did ultimately. Yes. Because God did it and he only does things that are ultimately good and perfect. Right. And and you're talking through the question beneath the question is helpful because what it's getting at is how do we set the guardrails of this kind of exploratory theology. Right. Like what what are the boundary markers, so to speak? And so I think you've hit on the biggest one, which is that God is who he says he is and does right. what he says he's going to do, right? right. Uh, that he's trustworthy, the, that he's faithful. And so I think that when we're thinking about some of the guardrails on this to kind of build off of what you've said, I think so well and so helpfully, we can talk about when we're thinking through Satan, there are some boundary markers. We can say this, Satan is created mm-hmm. because the only uncreated being is God. Mm-hmm. So there's not been an internal war between God and Satan. Mm-hmm. Satan is created. So there was mm-hmm. a time when Satan did not exist. There has never been a time when God did not exist. Right. We can say that Satan's power is at least under the supervision of God. We might have harder and looser ways of saying this, but it's clear that Satan is not, um, his power that he has is not a power that even comes close to matching the power of God. Mm -hmm. He's a created being. He's a created being. Yeah, and the the implications of his being finite, you know, are that that, um, sin is finite. Yeah. Right, because it's a, it's a product of finite beings, so that's pretty great news sure. right there. And we can set up a, a boundary marker of saying that Satan loses, yeah, and has <laughs> lost. So it, scripture's clear, even about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that he is binding the strong man, mm-hmm. right? He is setting up his kingdom and his kingdom. Part of that work is the defeat of Satan. We get to taste that now um, where the power of Satan has been dismissed, but the presence of Satan remains. There will come a time when even the very presence of Satan is done away with, right? For God's people right. and for the world. Well, and I even love the way that this question was entered it's why would an all-knowing God create someone he knew would be the ruler of darkness? And I, I always like to remind myself that when I ask a question like that, I'm asking a question about an all-knowing God as a 
as a limited knowledge being. Mm. And I think of, you know, like all of the things, all of the experts that are out there in the world, people who are experts in microbiology and people who are experts in um, not even things like, you know, uh, medicine or, you know, like they know how the human eye works in great detail. And there are so many things that I have zero knowledge of or very limited knowledge of. And anytime we say, why would an all-knowing God do something? It's actually good for us to think in terms of, well, just the fact that he's all-knowing means that he holds every fact and all fact and that there's probably a good explanation out there in some of those facts I don't know for how this all works together. But because I'm limited, it has not been shown to me and must not therefore be necessary for life and godliness. But, but and, and not to diminish at all the asking. I always, I love these kinds of questions because we should be able to ask them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Anything else to add? That's great. Okay. Uh, where was the Holy Spirit during the Old Testament? This is an opportunity for me to geek out a little bit. Yeah, I kinda, you were like thumbing in your Bible. You'd already turned <laughs> over the page to this question. Mm-hmm. So I kind of figured you had something to say about this. You're right. I do. All right. T- speak. Let's jump in. Speak your truth. So this is, uh, this is a really, I don't think we got to cover this idea when we did the Trinitarianism lecture, which maybe is something that was uh, missing in what we talked about last time. So you don't need to write this term down, but it's probably an important concept for people to know. When we think about Trinitarianism, or here when we're thinking about the Spirit, who's one person of the Trinity, it's important that we have an idea of what we call in theology inseparable operations. Uh, that term doesn't matter, but the, the concept does matter. God never does anything in only one persons of the Trinity, but is always acting from the Father through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. So that includes in the Old Testament, that includes in the in the Gospels, it includes in Acts, it includes today. So we don't want to have a concept that the Father is acting in the Old Testament that the Son is acting in the Gospels, and that the Spirit is acting from Acts on. Yeah, that's helpful. Right, so we see the Spirit of God uh, hovering over the waters in Genesis, and we know that that the Father is also creating through the Son because Colossians tells us that. So there's never, ever, ever any act of God which is simply only one person of the Trinity. And so the Spirit of God, which is now uh, indwelling the church, empowering us for faith and godliness and righteousness— is only doing that because the Father has sent him through the Son to, as a gift to the church. It's not like he's operating now separately from the, the persons of the Father and the Son. And so, yeah, does that help? But I think, in, I think the, it does. in the Bible, do you see a distinction in the way that the Spirit is uh, yeah, spoken yeah. of in the Old Testament versus in the New Testament? Like who we see him operating through? Man, this is a, that, That's a bit of a tougher question. Like was the Holy Spirit indwelling the saints of the Old Testament? Right. Or, right. or uh, doing the work of regeneration. Yeah. Well, that I don't think is, I would say that's not a hard question. Well, tell me why. Because I, I, I feel like this is a question last year that was, I, I felt like it was, I wasn't surprised by it. I was surprised at how often it got asked. Oh, yeah. In the it training program, people were asking me all the time. It's about, the how are people saved in the Old Testament. Right. Mm-hmm. So why did you say, I don't think that's a question at all about regeneration? Because salvation is, it's an eternal work. And so we're always saved by grace through faith. In Christ. In Christ. And then, you know, the the, the work of regeneration is done by the power of the Spirit. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. Yeah, I hope you are, Kyle. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) It is is a bit more, um, it is a bit more difficult, I think, to... Um, I, I have a hard time if if we take that line of thinking. I have a hard time saying that the Spirit did not indwell Old Testament saints. A part of the work of salvation is the Holy Spirit sealing salvation. Sure, yeah, yeah. So this is where I feel like because I I'm willing to follow the trail down all the way down to the indwelling of the Spirit mm-hmm. of Old Testament saints. What's 
what is often the case, what I find to be often the case, is that the people are fine with considering the, the Holy Spirit as operating in the mm-hmm. Old Testament, even operating in the scope of salvation, but get really bent out of shape when we talk about the Spirit indwelling. And that, I think, comes from Jesus' words in John saying, well, the Spirit's been with you, now he will be in you. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, that there's this distinction where the Spirit was with God's people in the Old Testament, and he's saying, no, no, he's going to be in you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a misunderstanding of that verse. I don't know that Jesus is talking about a, the spatial location of the Spirit as much of what the, the fullness of the Spirit's going to look like in post-Pentecost days. Right. So you might even be able to take this question and apply it to Christology here. Did the Holy Spirit save in the Old Testament? We could ask the question, did the Son save in mm-hmm. the Old Testament? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. not just that the work of the Spirit is salvation. It's the work of the triune God that is salvation. Yeah, that's good. So mm-hmm. there's no saint in the Old Testament that isn't saved through the work of Jesus Christ. They're not saved on their merit. They're not saved on their righteous deeds. They're not saved because of how they were the obedient Israel. They were saved because of what the Son of God was going to do for them as they were trusting in the promises of God. Yeah. And I think sometimes when we talk about reading the Bible, uh, like, uh, you know, it's become really popular to talk about reading the Old Testament Christologically or Mm -hmm. Christotelically. Mm -hmm. And we actually, JT and I were just facilitating facilitating a reading discussion group uh, around this topic. And I think what came up in that group is that I think that that's not just true in terms of reading the Old Testament Christologically. We need to be reading the Old Testament in light of all of the things that have been revealed in the New Testament. Yeah. Right. Going back into it and saying, well, listen, I know that we haven't heard a whole lot about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but he was working. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the kind of work he was doing is, I don't think it's qualitatively different between the New Testament and the Old Testament. I would say that there might have been a a fullness or a depth that was different. Mm -hmm. I kind of think, I'm I'm just going to, test this out. You no, can push on. back on That's it. But if for. you think about in the Old Testament, uh, you saw, you know, it's it's this language that we hear like a, in the book of Judges and elsewhere where the spirit comes upon someone and yes. there's a there's a particular work that happens or, or big, big moment that happens. And you see that in the Old Testament taking place with prophets priests, kings, right? Yes. Those are the, that's the three categories that mm-hmm. you would say reading the old time. Oh yeah, yeah. I see that there. And then you get to the new Testament and you see Pentecost and it sounds like, oh, so that's all of us now. And, um, would that be accurate on the basis that we are now a Royal priesthood as the church? Is there some switch that has happened there mm. that could account for the, for the changing I don't want to say changing work of the Holy. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess just a, maybe a, a broader work of the Holy Spirit. I don't. I don't know. No, you're asking a great question. I'm. Am I, I blowing up the podcast right now? You're always blowing up the podcast, <laughs> Jen, and we're so grateful for it. Yeah. At times, I feel like I have this clear in my thinking, and then at other times, I think I don't. I don't know. I don't. We're well, actually keying into an idea that maybe I have not articulated before or thought about before, Mm -hmm. which is that it might be good to think about the proper... Now, this is not unique, okay? So I just want to be clear. I'm not having a novel thought right now. Um, But that the fulfillment of the prophetic, priestly, and kingly office traditionally has been understood in Christ Christ, Jesus. Mm -hmm. But the dispersion of the gifts of the Holy Spirit really, in many ways, mirror those things. And that's not unique. A lot of times Mm -hmm. we talk about some of the gifts that the Spirit gives as mirroring those Mm -hmm. aspects of certain offices that we find in the Old Testament that were perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus. And so maybe one of the ways that you could talk about the spirit uh, working is that those offices, while no longer offices for the life of the church, have he, the, the spirit has dispersed those gifts mm-hmm. into the life of God's covenant people. And the spirit is doing it. Why? Because the prophet, priest, and king has ascended to give right. these gifts to the church. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I think that's kind of what I was headed toward. And right. I think a, another good point to consider is understanding the work of the spirit in the New Testament consistently with the work of the Spirit in the Old Testament 
is that the Spirit is working in, you know, salvation and regeneration. Look at the creation account, right? He is working in creation and then sustaining, and and it's always an order out of chaos work. Yep. And so anytime we're looking at the function of the Holy Spirit, Old Testament or New Testament, it is an order out of chaos progression that we should be seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important you know, on the topic of regeneration at all, like, which I'm glad you said that authoritatively, even when you were talking about it, I felt like, well, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three. He's telling him the spirit's going to do the, doing the regeneration right. work before Pentecost. So like, it, like at the very least, I think it is safe to say that the work of the Holy spirit in regeneration in particular, and I think I'd feel confident saying in indwelling God's covenant people and sealing their salvation. I think that's true of the old Testament. Uh, I would say that maybe not to the, not, maybe not to the depth. I'm getting the reason I keep saying depth. Depth is that uh, John Stott and Sinclair Ferguson, I think, have both made compelling arguments. If this is a topic you're really interested in, um, I think. Uh, Ferguson has a book on the Holy Spirit from IVP that's really good uh, and making a distinction between the kind of work that the Spirit was doing in the Old and mm-hmm. New Testament mm-hmm. and the depth of that work. Mm-hmm. That it's not a difference of quality. It's kind of a difference of quantity um, in terms of the way that the Spirit was operating in the lives of his people in its fullness. So I feel like that's helpful. It's good. Okay. Where did This is another question about Old Testament salvation. Where did people go when they died before Jesus' death and resurrection? I think they went the same place that people go as we die in the New Testament, right? <laughs> and so, so uh, people we have to remember are just souls, and yeah. they're also not just bodies. It, with a human being, we have a, a what we call a kind of a complex dichotomy, or a body and a soul. And when we experience death, and when they experience death, we our bodies, our physical bodies, go into the ground, and we're awaiting the resurrection. And mm-hmm. so, uh, we would want to say that, in some sense, the salvation has been accomplished. It's not complete. That we're, this salvation is still being worked out as we look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same way these Old Testament saints would have looked forward to the return of the Messiah and ultimately resurrection from the dead. However, I would also hold to kind of an intermediate state that our souls are experiencing pleasure and goodness and beauty as we experience fellowship with the triune God in the heavens. And so I think, you know, Paul makes it clear that it's it's better it's better to be uh, absent from the body if I'm present with the Lord. Mm-hmm. But, but he also makes it very clear that this absence from the body is not something that will be uh, uh, total or forever, that he's looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. And so the Old Testament saints... Their bodies went into the ground. Their souls, I think, experienced a fellowship with the triune God as they look forward to the resurrection from the dead and salvation insofar as they will one day be, uh, salvation will one day be complete. That's good. I felt like I heard a lot about growing up this this notion of Abraham's the bosom. bosom. Right, oh man. The bosom of Abraham. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, and I have, like, I'll be honest, to this day, I don't know what that is. It sounds like Jewish purgatory. Right? <laughs> like, uh, like, okay, Abraham is in Jewish purgatory called Abraham's bosom. And everybody else and went to Abraham's. please call it something else? I, I know. Mean, I, just, it I just, don't want him to have a bosom. It feels exotic. <laughs> oh man. No, I mean, it's just, it's just an interesting phrase to yeah, use. Yeah, it's um, pretty King James. Okay, so I feel like this... The, if I had written this question, I probably would have been writing it with that in mind. Yeah. Well, I think, that, you know, this is what I was thinking while JT was um, talking about it is a lot of the confusion, I think, in the, in the, the current, the, in the common asker of this question is arising from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah. Right. And that I think is a, like the poster child example or one of them of needing to have an understanding of genre when Mm. you're reading the scriptures, because when Jesus gives that parable, he is not concerned about clarifying for us where we go after we die. 
Yeah. Right. He's not concerned with our location after we die. He is. He's. He's teaching a, a spiritual truth about the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and so uh, we've taken often the 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 picture that's given there of the the rich man and Lazarus and tried to turn it, make it say more than it's trying to. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Well, so moving from kind of the high-level biblical theology, systematic theology, um, one of the questions that we saw in there was this, I have this odd fear of death, even though I consider myself to be a believer. Am I really saved if I fear the idea of death? And I want to hear what JT and Jen have to say about this, but I, I have to just confess on the front end that I have for my whole life struggled with the fear of death. Mm-hmm. If you asked me, what are the top three fears in your life? I would, death would probably be at the top of that list. And that uh, there was a season in my life where I struggled with panic attacks or related to just physiological concerns. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, oh my gosh, this is, this is symptomatic of the fact that I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And so just for whoever asked this question, if you're getting a chance to listen to this, I just want you to know um, that um, I, you're, you're hearing from somebody who, who believes that they're a believer and who has experienced the Lord in, in powerful ways, but also still has to be prepared on a daily, weekly, monthly annual basis to be fighting against a fear of death. And so I'd love to just talk about the kind of second part of this question. Am I really saved if I fear the idea of death? I mean, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I just want to emphasize too, I can identify with this with this as well. My, my wife and I had uh, several years there in a row where we had some really close friends and family members die. And it just felt like a season of death for us where it just felt like we were living in Ecclesiastes a little bit. Where it's mm-hmm. like, what is the point of all of this if we're all going to die? And it, it really yeah. developed in us this great fear of, of even living because of this fear of impending death that's awaiting all of us. And so I think what's important is sometimes theologically we can speak of death in positive terms, uh, which the Bible almost never does. Mm-hmm. The, the, the death is an enemy to be defeated, not a salvation experience. And so and so sometimes we can speak of death as, as kind of homegoing right. or homecoming. And I'm not sure the Bible gives us that category. I think the Bible is saying death is actually what God defeats, yeah. not something to be worshipped. And so we have a teacher that comes into our training program that says this line so helpfully. He says, let us never call a friend what God calls an enemy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the Bible is clear that death is an enemy. So I think there can actually be a Christian posture that does 
fear death yeah. or at least have uh, is not looking forward to it yeah right it's an intrusion yes that's exactly death right is an intrusion and even when you think about the kind of the, the the metaphor of death or you think of genesis one and two humanity is meant to be taken up out of the dirt you see adam and mm-hmm. eve have life breathed into them right. not life taken out of them and put back in the dirt and so the, the the experience of salvation is not to go into the ground it's to come out of the ground yeah. well and it's it's an uncertainty, right? Like it's not something we can ever know. We want to know what's it going to be like, and, and we can't know that. In fact, there are a lot of books that have been written by people who want to tell us what it's like, saying they've had you know a, a, a death or a near death experience. And it, I think that the the prevalence of those books speaks to our desire to be able to say, but what's going to happen? Mm. And you know, there are only uh, a few people who were raised from the dead. And they didn't write exposés. So we we don't know what it will be like. And I think it is natural to feel anxiety around the unknown. Uh, now, if that anxiety consumes you, you know, that's something right. to start to start paying attention to. But it is natural to feel that way. And it's so funny. Like, I'm... I'm 48. I've I've worked through some of this, you know, as I've gotten older and now I'm starting to feel the effects of aging, which is, you know, you either die suddenly and shockingly or you die slowly where you're relinquishing your your rights and your abilities as you get older <clears throat> just by the nature of the aging process and so I had, you know, this I had a cancer diagnosis at 27 and had to answer some of these questions mm-hmm. like how do I really feel about death as it relates to my faith and all of that. And I'm kind of to a place now for those of you who are like, this is not my fear. Uh, I don't fear dying. I fear the process of dying or suffering. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I always think, you know, when I'm on an airplane, this is not a bad way to die if the plane goes down, but I don't want to be the person who survives the crash <laughs> is really seriously messed up, right? right? And so that to me has been like, great. So I don't fear death, but I do still have this fear of suffering or prolonged suffering, which mm-hmm. I don't think, I think that's worth paying attention to and asking questions about as well. I think the Bible is maybe even anticipating our fear of death or fear of suffering. Yeah. And so there's just two texts that I just want to read briefly that have always been a consolation to my to my soul as I've considered these things. The first is Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 verses 6 through 8 say this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make uh, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away all the tears from all faces. Amen. So the Bible is telling us that this is a that this is a veil over the nations. Mm-hmm. It is something that will eventually be defeated. And then finally, Paul, as he's giving his gospel explanation, which I find just so beautiful in 1 Corinthians 15, says this, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallow, swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen. And that's future day, Revelation 21. That's where I had turned right yep. here. Mm-hmm. It says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And so that's what we're looking forward to. That's right. Uh, even in the midst of our fear, I found that one of the ways to combat this fear, and I know that Jen and JT can testify to this as well as they have been, is that one of the ways to combat fear is not to believe that we are impenetrable mm-hmm. and uh, immortal but to believe that there is a day coming when death will be finally and fully defeated mm. and that we will get to see that day in its fullness. Um, why? Uh, so moving 
kind of back into some of the stream of these questions. Uh, this listener asked, why didn't Jesus have to spend eternity in hell since he took our punishment and he's our substitute? Um, I'm going to give you a stab at it. Okay. Uh, here's how I would answer it if I was asked this in a class uh, or if I was asked this on a podcast, hypothetically. Right. You, you are yeah, being, being asked, asked this, I guess. So, here, so here's my answer. Um, the Son of God is the is infinitely God, and he is able to infinitely absorb God's wrath uh, towards sin, which is why this isn't an infinite uh, um, penalty for him, because it's been infinitely absorbed because of who he is. Mm. He's the Son of God. And sin is finite. And sin is finite. Yeah. I think that's good. I think that's helpful. I mean, I think that it, it, it does probably come to you from a, there are probably two aspects of this question that would need to be just teased out a little bit mm-hmm. more. Part of it is that the eternity in hell component. Right. Now, we, it's for a different time to talk about the doctrine of hell, but generally it's a popular level understanding that we have in Christian circles around what eternity in hell looks like, I think oftentimes misreads some significant portions of scripture. But what the question is asking here is how does Jesus, like how does Jesus actually make atonement mm-hmm. if he doesn't suffer eternally? Right, And I think that part of that is realizing that what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, absorbs on the cross is the full weight and wrath of God against sin. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's not, uh, it's not that— And even completely exhausts it in that moment. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's good. Do we feel good about that? Okay. Good job, guys. Oh, well done. Thank you. If you if you are curious about atonement, um, I think this is just a good time for a shameless plug. Do it. JT and I have a book that we love that we're using for the training program this year for our seminary track students. It's called The Crucified King. Mm-hmm. And I think that book does as good a job as any book that I've read mm-hmm. on the topic of helping to kind of paint a picture of what a biblical view of atonement looks like. It's incredible. Yeah, it's so. kind of a biblical theology and a systematic theology written uh, at a pastoral lay level that should be fairly understandable um, yeah. so and readable. Highly recommend. Yeah, it's great. Last question here and then lightning round, which I'm ready for. <laughs> Because we're going to have some fun. We're doing a lightning round? Um, we are doing a lightning round. Um, thunder and lightning. Will there be sound effects? Because I really want there to be. <laughs> Maybe we can get Chris to give us some sound effects. Like a, like a wah, wah. <laughs> when we get it wrong. Um, last thing here. And I love this question because I, I understand the heart that it comes from. I've mm. been here. Is doubt a sin? And what is truly the best way to work through doubt? If doubt's a sin, I think... Uh, You're the chiefest of sinners. Yeah, I would be yeah. in despair, <laughs> yeah. right? Because yeah. we're not trying to say that salvation is based upon certainty. Salvation is based right. upon the certain work of the Lord Jesus Christ, not not on my ability to comprehend or apprehend or understand all that he's done on my behalf. And so, uh, and there's doubt everywhere in the scriptures as God's people are questioning the Lord's work. So tonight we're teaching in the training program on wisdom literature and specifically the Psalms and the Psalms of lament Mm -hmm. and Israel and David, they're regularly questioning God's work. Why are you doing this? You said you're the covenantal God who said that you'd be faithful to us. Why are you, are you waiting? Why are you waiting to put our enemies underneath your feet? Why are they reigning and not us? You promised that we'd be reigning. And so I think um, one of the thing, one of the ways we can actually express our certainty in God is to question Him when it feels like our experience aren't matching up with what He's promised us mm-hmm. in His covenants. Does that make sense? Of course. I think this is a this question is linked to the question of is anger a sin? Right. Anytime mm-hmm. you're dealing with a negative emotion, we tend to think, oh, because it's a negative emotion, it must be sinful. And right. yet, the scriptures don't characterize anger or doubt as sinful in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. In 
they are a natural response that we have to something that is uncertain or something that doesn't make sense. Or, you know, in the case of anger, if we're um, threatened or our will is violated or something like that. So these are natural responses in the instant that they occur. But then just as the scriptures would speak to anger as something that you have to keep an eye on because it very quickly can move from an initial reaction Mm -hmm. to a pattern of thinking and uh, that then, then turns into other things. I think the same thing could be said of doubt. Doubt is a starting point, but if it becomes a pattern for living, that's when you begin to say, hey, what's really going on here? Um, But we should not shame people for having a response of doubt. Right. And faith faith, uh, should necessarily include kind of a posture of doubt as well, right? We're not talking about... So Augustine's definition for theology is faith seeking understanding, Mm -hmm. not certainty seeking Mm -hmm. more knowledge. And so faith itself kind of has to include, I think, this idea of I'm operating from a position of faith, not certainty, and faith must include me working out some of these more challenging aspects of the faith. We're allowed to question. I mean, this has actually been a really tough concept for people who come to the Bible class, they they think I'm not allowed to question what I'm hearing or even question, certainly not question what I'm seeing in the text, mm-hmm. right? Because it's God's word. And yet in order to come to a place of uh, even just deeper understanding, you have to face down those questions. And and the, the scriptures are strong enough to support your doubt. Um, the The the, the vision of God that we're given there is big enough to encompass your doubt and, and you're allowed to ask those questions. In fact, I would say it's, it's critical to the strength of your faith that you do so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so helpful. So, we've, so I think we've made it clear that doubt is not a sin. That's a part of human life that um, the Bible knows that, is aware of that. So trying to get to what is truly the best way to work through it. I've had, a, I've had a lot of opportunity to spend time talking with doubters and some of the things that I often encourage them in, in terms of how, as they're processing, these are just a few thoughts. Um, the first one is to try to process your doubts in community. Mm. If you try to take your doubts into the darkness mm-hmm. of isolation and loneliness, uh, they are, it's, that's just not a place for thriving, yeah. period. Amen. That's circular like, thinking period, town, right. yeah. Uh, and so uh, you, all you're going to get in the darkness is probably more of yourself and more of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So try, try to approach these questions of doubt in the light of community. I think the other aspect is to try to, and there's maybe, not, I'm trying to think of a better way to say this, but try to take the best form of the argument. Like if you're doubting something about the Bible and you've not actually investigated it, like maybe investigate it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like maybe go, you know what? Like uh, I watched this YouTube video and this person said X about the Bible. Who is that person? On what basis have they said X? Have you thought about maybe some of the other people that might have things to say about that? I'm sure there are other people that maybe have differing opinions. Like you should look into that mm-hmm. and consider that. Mm-hmm. And then I think the another the, the other aspect of this is that I see, and this gets back to the isolation, particularly in Christian circles, when doubt begins to emerge, people feel like, well, if I'm doubting, I need to withdraw myself, recuse myself from the practices and habits of the Christian community. Mm-hmm. So like I need to immediately- Like it's like, a state of uncleanness Exactly. Almost. So yeah. I need to like stop reading my Bible, stop praying, stop attending worship, all of those things. And I think that's actually a little bit disingenuous sometimes mm-hmm. because it actually pulls you out of the thing where there might actually be truth and light to be found. You mm-hmm. haven't done enough investigating to figure out 
whether or not that's the case. And so I think to um, what I often feel in uh, situations where there's doubt or there's doubt present is there can immediately be the sense of I need to get out of here quickly. And I think that that emerges because sometimes people have expressed that doubt and it's not been a safe place for them. Right. Um, and so if you're in a situation where the church you're at or the community you're a part of is not a safe place for doubt, the solution is not to go, okay, forget it. I just need to run away. The solution is to enter into a place that is safe for you to be walking in that doubt together. So those are just a few thoughts. Well, I want us to move us to a lightning round. We're not going to, we're not going to spend as much time in all these questions. Um, we're going to try to process them pretty quickly. So I want like 30 second minute long kind of short responses to this. Okay. So let's just, let's go shorter than that. Let's oh. just go. Which is like, yes, no. Yeah, why not? (laughs) You guys remember that episode in Friends where Joey's having a hard time knowing where they go to take the north route or south route and Phoebe has him do a lightning round? That's true. That's what this feels like. So if there's a doctrine that comes up here that I don't know the answer to, it's possible that we could just come up with the answer quickly. You know what? That's like... (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Let's try that. Um, (laughs) I think some of our listeners are experiencing doubt at this moment. They're like, okay, have we been trusting these people as guides? (laughs) Is this how they settle everything? That we're just sitting up here with a coin, tossing it, going like, okay, this answer, this answer. Okay, first one, here we go. Should women hold leadership positions in the church? Jen? Yes. Okay. JT? Absolutely. Yeah, I think a woman should be be able to do anything uh, in the local church that any man should do, accepting the office of elder. Yeah, I think the fact that this question exists shows our confusion around uh, the idea of leadership in general, that we have tended to view it, and I would say sometimes teach it as a holy masculine quality. Amen. And you just don't see that in the scriptures. That's true, true, true. Does the Christian faith fall apart if there's no literal Adam? Yes. Jen? I'm just going to defer to Jay. Yeah, I mean, I think so. This yes. is something I need to spend more time on. Yeah, I think so. And again, uh, we had an episode on the doctrine of creation two episodes ago. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, we do spend a little bit of time talking about, I talk about this as a non-negotiable for me, the doctrine of creation for two reasons. One, it's hard to find the image of God, which is yeah. a crucial doctrine that I we can't lose yep. apart from a literal historical Adam. And also the, uh, the, uh, entrance of sin into the world and the New Testament scope of salvation. How Romans 5. That? Right. So it just, it doesn't make sense apart from Adam. So. Yeah, I say I think so only because I can't say, oh, I've done all the reading on this. Sure. But I, when you, I agree the, with your This one, position. I feel like you do have a very certain answer that okay. who were the Nephilim? <laughs> they were just bad dudes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just like the Suicide Squad? Yeah, like the Suicide Squad. No, you know, if you look at it, you got to put in the context, right? And Genesis, uh, all the way up until the point where they're introduced, is talking about the righteous versus the unrighteous in the various genealogies it gives and the way it's, you know, laying out the text. And I think this is just a continuation of that. It's saying that there were unrighteous that married with married righteous and the resulting offspring were not awesome. JT, what do you think? I agree. Whenever Jen speaks, yeah, I'm just, uh uh-huh, yep, good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, I, but let me give my honest answer. I have no idea. Well, yeah. I, okay. Yeah. Usually, the way I answer that oh, is. Oh, now you're okay. My all right. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't know, but that answer sounds way more reasonable to me than but, they were angels who married humans. Or had sex with humans. I'm like, what? Yes. I feel like you got to do a lot more gymnastics because, around because that. Because that, that understanding is very prevalent. Oh, it's everywhere. Oh, yeah. And so, and I, that raises some significant concerns for me in terms of our anthropology right. and what we call our angelology right. or demonology, right. where it's like angels and demons are not humans. Right. Right. Humans are humans. Angels are angels. 
demons are demons. Right. Right. And so we don't get this. First off, we're, it's a little bit uncertain whether angels and demons are gendered at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so that if that's kind of a question mark and then there's the question of physiology. So many questions. They're embodied, but probably not human like we are. They take a bodily form. So yeah, I think your response to that, Jen, is, is good. What we know about them is that they were not good people. Right. Like whoever they were. And we don't know much else. Yeah. Right. And that they were bad. Yep. Okay. Is Melchizedek an Old Testament appearance of Jesus? We've had a lot of arguments about this. So we just have. for the sake of argument, I'm going to say yes, but the real answer is probably maybe. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to? Do you want to not read the Bible christologically and Christotelically? Don't do that to me. You if know, you don't want to, that's fine. Well, here's just, what we can agree on: He's certainly a type, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, I mean, Hebrews says Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Mm-hmm. You know, what it doesn't. So say? how can he be Melchizedek? Jesus was Melchizedek. <laughs> I'm looking at the peanut gallery right now, and everybody's giving me like thumbs. Can we get some kind of when we when we launch this? Can we get some kind of like wah wah when Kyle? No, it's, that's where we needed like the the laser gun sound <laughs> effect. <laughs> Yes, I, admittedly, I have a problem with. I, I understand that Christophany stuff is out there. People love to look for what is it. Out there, Kyle. What do you mean? Look, <laughs> are, 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 I'm actually with Kyle okay. on this. Okay. Oh, oh, see what? Oh, yeah. Well, I agree with you guys then. <laughs> no, I am because I'm all for reading the Old Testament Christocentrically, but I also think people can get a little crazy with it. Yeah, we don't want to get crazy, but maybe let's move away from Melchizedek. When we, we want to talk about like appearances of the angel of the Lord, and we, uh, okay, here we go. I got the eye roll already, <laughs> guys. Just to be clear, it was from Kyle, yeah. not not this from me. This feels like an unsafe place for me. <laughs> Well, uh, you're not expressing that. You're expressing certainty. The, no, this is, I'm not certain okay. about this, but okay. why well, I'm certain about this. Okay, great. <laughs> the Father mm-hmm. always reveals himself through the Son yeah. by the power of the Spirit. These would be perhaps pre-incarnate uh, revelations of the Son by the power of the Spirit. Okay, so here's a question. In the, so when it says that the um, covenant at Sinai was mediated by angels, mm-hmm. is that Jesus? It's possible. Oh my gosh. It's possible. Is so it? when Jacob has his dream about the, the stairway, is that gonna, Jesus walking up the stairs? We're, it's possible. Or is gonna, Jesus the stairs? It's huh? both. Oh boy. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to come back to this. I'm looking at the time and going like, if you are still with us, bless you, brother or sister. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. We're going to be off for the holidays into January. And so we'll start releasing Knowing Faith episodes back towards the end of January of 2019. So uh, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. See you next time. Grace and peace.